coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air. What you need to know about the detection and treatment of prostate cancer. Not all prostate cancer is the same, and it's it's more complex than than you know than people realize. You know, you, you hear a lot of people talk about prostate cancer, and it's something that you don't have to worry about, and you know you you die with it, not from it. But you know that's that's just one type of prostate cancer. There are more aggressive types of prostate cancer that definitely kill men. And we'll explore how the pandemic plays a role in a huge increase in deaths from opioid overdoses. On one hand, I think the pandemic in and of itself increases things like depression and anxiety. And I think when you couple these things together, and unfortunately we're seeing increased overdoses as a result. All that along with a visit from the Healing Muse, coming up after the news. Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, science, and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. On this week's show, a medical toxicologist addresses the striking increase in opioid overdose deaths in Central New York. But first, what every man needs to know about prostate cancer. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. NBC weatherman Al Roker recently shared with viewers that he was diagnosed with prostate cancer, which is the most common cancer among men not counting skin cancer. So today I'm speaking with a urologist from Upstate who takes care of men with prostate cancer. Welcome to Dr. Joseph Jacob. He's an assistant professor of urology and he specializes in urologic oncology. Thank you for making time for this interview, Dr. Jacob. Thank you for having me. So Al Roker uh, told viewers that he found out he had prostate cancer through some routine blood work. Is that how most men discover they have prostate cancer? Yes, it is. So most men will get what's called prostate cancer screening and prostate cancer screening is made up of a blood test, um, which is called PSA and a rectal exam done by a primary care physician. So at what age do PSA tests begin on men? When is that recommended to start? So that's a little bit controversial and depends on the risk uh, of the patient. But if you look at our guidelines, the AUA guidelines, um, they just changed this to um, about 55 uh, is when you start in general for the, for the um, general population. And you stop screening at, at, at the age about 70. Um, but that's just our society guidelines. Um, and you, you can screen based on, you know, once a year, once every other year. And it's based on, you try to tailor it to the risk of the patient. Um, other guidelines are more stringent. If you look at some other societies, they say not even to screen for prostate cancer. But in general, now what we've decided as a medical profession is, when you're screening patients for cancer, it should be a conversation. Um, you should talk to them about the risks of screening because there are risks of screening. There's a lot of good that comes from screening, um, but there's also some risks that, that can happen when you screen patients. Um, so with anything you do in medicine, it should be a conversation and you should let the patient decide when they want to start screening or if they want to screen at all. So the American Urologic Association um, what do what does that organization say about the numbers of the PSA test? Like, what do the numbers mean? Right. So you you have to pick a cutoff. Uh, so it's it's a little bit more arbitrary than people than, than people like. But what you do is you look at a huge population of men, and you see at what number do does the risk of prostate cancer start you know, becoming more and more uh, common. Uh, and so what, what we've decided is a, a, the number of four. And so if you have a PSA of four or above, uh, then we start talking about what to do and, you know, and trying to find if, there, if you do have a prostate cancer. So, you know, wh what I talk to patients about, and I have this conversation all the time, 
you know, just because your PSA is high or elevated, that doesn't mean you have prostate cancer. Uh, it's not a perfect test by any means. The risk that you have prostate cancer starts to increase. Um, but, but even then, a lot of patients that have a high PSA may not have cancer. And so it's not like a, you know, definitive diagnosis when you, when a guy goes to the, you know, primary care and has a high PSA, you know, I don't want patients to freak out. I think a lot of it can be, um, can be managed. And the idea is we're trying to catch prostate cancer very, very early. And, and PSA, the great thing about PSA, and we've been able to, to, to catch cancer much earlier than we have in the past before PSA. So aside from the PSA test, are there symptoms? Are there like physical symptoms that men should be on the lookout for? That's a good question. You know, a lot of patients ask that and, you know, you, we're trying to, so this is a screening test. So we're trying to catch this before it becomes a problem for men. And so generally patients don't have symptoms. And so a lot of men will say, oh, I'm having trouble peeing. Is it prostate cancer? And, and that's actually not necessarily related. Um, it can be in r rare circumstances, but in general, when we're doing these screening tests, we're trying to find with any cancer, whether it be prostate cancer, breast cancer, colon cancer, we're trying to find these cancers before you have symptoms. Okay. Now, one thing that Mr. Roker said uh, in a segment on the Today Show, he said one in nine men will be diagnosed with prostate cancer, but if you carve out just African-American men, it's one in seven. So what does race have to do with prostate cancer? Yeah, it's it's something well known uh, in, in urology, and we screen black men a little bit more aggressively than we would uh, a white man, for example. Uh, we don't know why. Uh, we don't know why black men tend to get prostate cancer more frequently. And, and the unfortunate thing is when black men do have prostate cancer, it tends to be more aggressive. Uh, and so we, we do tailor our screening and our treatment and our counseling based on, based on race. Interesting. Now, and, and you mentioned that the prostate-specific antigen test is sort of uh, recommended middle age. Um, so most of your patients are, are older, right? Right. So most, most men are in their 60s when they're getting this diagnosis. Now, unfortunately, we see men earlier than this. Um, you know, I just had a... Uh, conversation with a couple guys that were in their 40s but you know and you and you say you know what well you don't even start screening till the age of 50 or 55 and so you know one thing is if you if a patient has risk factors then that's one thing that that we would recommend is you start screening uh earlier well okay once you have that patient whether they're in their 40s or 50s or 60s if if they have a an alarmingly high PSA number. What happens after that? Is it, do you, are you looking? Do you have to have like a biopsy in order to get the diagnosis? Yes. Yeah, so conventionally, the the only way to get a definitive diagnosis is to do a prostate biopsy. Um, you know that that's a tissue confirmation. And that'll tell you not only is there prostate cancer or not, it'll also tell you the aggressiveness of the prostate cancer. When we look at you, the pathologist will look under the microscope and there's a grading scale based on how aggressive the cancer cells look. And based on that grading scale, we know that the prostate cancer will behave differently based on how aggressive the cells look. And it's been well studied and there's some prostate cancers that we find that we actually will will watch and not treat. Uh, we'll watch very closely. Um, and there's a there is a prostate cancer that men get that we've realized over the years that that likely will sit there, and they'll die with it, not not from it. But there are different types of prostate cancers, and there are prostate cancers that definitely need to be treated. So. You know, one take-home message for patients is not all prostate cancer is the same, and it's it's more complex than than you know than people realize. 
you know, you, you hear a lot of people talk about prostate cancer and it's something that you don't have to worry about and, you know, you, you die with it, not from it, but you know, that's, that's just one type of prostate cancer. There are more aggressive types of prostate cancer that definitely kill men that definitely need to be treated. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Joseph Jacob. He's an assistant professor of urology at Upstate, and we're talking about prostate cancer after NBC weatherman Al Roker shared that he was diagnosed with prostate cancer. Now, Al Roker said his cancer was fairly aggressive. It's so you can tell based on the biopsy, right? Exactly. Yeah. So the pathologist will look at at the cells under the microscope and, and tell you how aggressive these cells look. And that's been shown to correlate with, you know, outcomes and prognosis. So as the physician, you need all of that information before you can help a patient decide what the best course of treatment is. Absolutely. Absolutely. So we, we want to gather all the information about the patient specifically and personally before we can come up with a, you know, tailored personal treatment plan for them. And so a lot of what we do as urologists is we, we, we try to get as much information as possible and then we can tailor that treatment plan to the patient and go over all the different treatment options. And we can also talk about prognosis and, and what, what a patient should expect over their lifetime. So in general, I kind of, I just wanted to ask you some of the, the treatments. I, now, Al Roker had a prostatectomy where his prostate was surgically removed. So that's one option, surgery. But even within surgery, there's different types of surgery, right? So, you know, for prostate cancer, surgical options are really going to be removal of the prostate. Um, and most of that is done laparoscopic robotic. Um, so that's, that's, a, that's the most common way of, of removing a, a prostate. There are some newer types of therapies that are being studied and that uh, ha have been available uh, to patients in, in select circumstances that, that, a, that a surgeon would, would offer. Um, but most commonly we're talking about a, a prostatectomy or removal of the prostate. Is that typically followed up with radiation or chemotherapy or any other type of intervention? So not typically. So it depends. Everything depends on the, 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 the information that we have about the patient. So in general, when somebody comes in with prostate cancer, the first thing you want to know is, is how aggressive it is. Based on how aggressive it is, it has a tendency to either stay in the prostate for years or to to move out of the prostate and become what we call metastatic prostate cancer. And so when, when guys come in to see me, for example, we want to make sure that the prostate cancer is not too aggressive and not something that has a high risk of spreading outside and becoming metastatic cancer. And so one of the, you know, goals of surgery or other treatments to the prostate is to try to prevent the prostate cancer from spreading out of the prostate and becoming, you know, more of uh, what we call metastatic prostate cancer. And that would be, you know, a very different treatment uh, for patients once they have that. So you have to, you know, kind of group patients into different categories. And so what we talk about is, you know, there is a certain group of men that have localized prostate cancer, meaning that that's local. It means it's just in the in the prostate. And then there's a certain group of men that have metastatic prostate cancer uh, and meaning that that has spread outside of the prostate. So to answer your question, if a patient has, you know, a localized prostate cancer and had and they have a good outcome from the surgery, then that likely will be the only treatment that they need for the rest of their life. Now, that being said, you know, every cancer patient has to be followed pretty much for the rest of their life. And if the, you know, if the cancer starts to come back, we start seeing signs that the cancer may be, um, we call it a recurrence, then we would offer something like radiation or there's different types of hormonal therapies because prostate cancer is very hormone sensitive um, or even chemotherapies. 
Interesting. It sounds like it's very individualized. Um, is there even, can you tell me in general how long a man with prostate cancer is in treatment? It sounds like it could be solved with surgery and, and they might be done then, right? Yeah, most most of prostate cancer is either going to be the kind of cancer that we can really watch closely, which we call that active surveillance, or it's going to be localized prostate cancer where we can offer a local therapy like surgery or radiation, and that they're going to be cured from that. Um, unfortunately, there there is a group of men that will either show up or present with metastatic prostate cancer, or they'll develop metastatic prostate cancer uh, over their over their lifespan. We will be right back with more about prostate cancer with urologic oncologist, Dr. Joseph Jacob. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air with your host, Amber Smith. I'm talking about prostate cancer with Dr. Joseph Jacob, an assistant professor of urology at Upstate. So let me ask you after surgery, we'll focus on surgery as a treatment, and what can a man expect in the early days and then after, after recovery? So patients have done much, much better over time. You know, it's... It's a surgery that is done laparoscopically, so you, that means that you, we use small incisions that will fit laparoscopic instruments. They're about an inch wide, um, and you, you may use about four or five incisions across the belly, so they're small incisions. And then what you do is you use uh, CO2 gas to fill up, the, fill up the belly, and that gives you space where you can work. And one of the big advances of removal of the prostate or prostatectomy is... Uh, uh, robotics. And so, you know, many surgeons, most surgeons now that, that, that treat prostate cancer will do what's called a robotic prostatectomy. And, and all that means is these are small instruments, fine instruments that a surgeon can control with their hands, but it gives them space and access into the pelvis where the prostate is. And you can do a lot of fine movements and get access to a very narrow tricky area. And so the surgeon is removing the, the prostate with the instrument of a robotic platform. Um, so a lot of patients will ask me, you know, is the robot doing the surgery? And no, it doesn't move without the surgeon moving the, uh, the instruments. And so it's just a tool where it allows surgeons better access into a tight, narrow area. And so with that, with that platform, with that technology, you know, we're able to do this relatively complicated surgery where you're moving an organ and you have to sew things back together. Um, we're doing that in, in pretty pretty good time and and with minimal incisions. And so patients from a pain standpoint have done extremely well. Um, most patients don't don't require pain medicine when they go home, uh, and they're leaving the hospital either the same day or the day after. And so. Patients recover pretty quickly from the surgery. Within a, within the first couple weeks, patients are starting to get back to uh, doing what they what they're used to be doing. So let's talk about sexual function because I've heard that that can be affected by surgery. Is that um, is that something that is still a concern? Yes, and so whenever you offer a treatment in medicine, you always have to realize that there's going to be some side effects. And so, you know, any kind of treatment for prostate cancer, um, unfortunately, is going to affect men's ability to have erections. So surgery or radiation, they're both treating the prostate, but unfortunately, the nerves that that help men achieve erections, they are very, very close to the prostate. And so you have to do your best not to affect those nerves, but you, you can't avoid the fact that they're within the treatment space. Uh, and so, you know, one of, the, one of the risks or one of the side effects of, 
uh, surgery or radiation is you do hurt men's quality of life. And you so, so men's erections will not be as good as they were before the surgery. And that's sort of a trade-off. You have to talk to patients about it. They say, look, we're going to treat your cancer, but there is a little bit of a quality of life trade-off, unfortunately. Are there, uh, is there any other impact? Are there other side effects to be aware of? Yes. And so the two big side effects that we talk to men about are um, erection problems. And we've, we've done better over the years. So, you know, the nerve sparing prostatectomy was developed and um, that has, you know, improved over the years and surgeons have gotten better and better at sparing nerves. And so you can spare nerves safely and uh, from a cancer standpoint. Um, and so men, you know, especially if they have good erections before the surgery, they, they can expect to have um, reasonable erections after the surgery. They may need some help with pills like Viagra or Cialis, but uh, in general, you can try to um, try to reduce that side effect as best you can. The other big side effect with surgery is men have to realize that um, it can lead to some urine um, leakage. Um, and what I mean by that is like when men, you know, women deal with it all the time after, after um, childbirth, but um, men aren't used to it. You know, if you bend over, pick something up, sneeze, cough, um, when you're when you're first recovering from surgery, that that isn't an, an issue, and it's usually a temporary issue. But you know, men are men have to realize that it, it, temporarily they they're likely going to have to use like pads um, uh, while they're recovering and getting those muscles stronger uh, uh, after surgery. Okay, but let's um, let's remember and talk about if it's prostate cancer and you remove the prostate, have you removed the threat of cancer? That's the hope. That's okay. the hope. that's the that's the goal. That's why we go through all this stuff, and that's why patients agree to, you know, take a little bit of a hit to their quality of life in hopes of curing the cancer. Now, you know, we can we can fool ourselves and and t and tell tell ourselves that you know it's a perfect treatment and we save everybody, and, and but it's not it's not true. I mean, most patients, you know, th that's going to be a cure for their cancer, um, but but unfortunately, cancer is. Um, it's tricky and it, it can confuse us and it can, it can do unexpected things. And so, um, sometimes you don't necessarily, you know, cure the patient, um, but it is a good first step. And, and even if the patients have, uh, what we call a recurrence, um, they, that can be managed and that can be, that can be treated. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. This is your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Joseph Jacob, an assistant professor of urology at Upstate. We're talking about prostate cancer because NBC weatherman Al Roker shared that he was diagnosed with prostate cancer. Now, Upstate has multidisciplinary care and a tumor board. And those are things patients are not likely to find unless they receive care at an academic medical center so can you explain what these are and what their value is? Yeah, it's great. It's one of the well, nice things about being a part of an academic center. Uh, you have uh, what we call multidisciplinary teams where we have people from different specialties that come together and look at a specific patient and we look at their, you know, their information, their, their cancer, their images, their pathology. Uh, and so we have, we sit down, well, we used to sit down in a room and now we do it uh, over uh, the video, but um, we would have uh, a, a urologist that treat cancer. We have oncologists that treat cancer. We have pathologists that speci specialize in looking at prostate cancer. Um, we have radiologists that look at images. And so we have a, a bunch of people that come together and everyone sort of gives their opinion and gives their um you know, sort of their experience, and and you sort of get a tailored, personalized treatment plan for that specific patient. And you, you, you can sit there and spend up to 10, 20, 30 minutes on one patient, just sort of everybody um, trying to figure out the best sort of solution for the patient. Now, this is, this is usually um, used in cases that in some cases are very straightforward and there's not really a question, but in cases where you may need everybody to come together and, and something difficult to 
um, to figure out, or there may not be like a lot of data or research behind it. We kind of come together and, 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 and come up with a, a plan. Um, so it's, it's reserved for many patients actually with cancer. Um, we, we at Upstate, we, we try to make it a personalized uh, uh, approach and many patients end up getting tumor board uh, multidisciplinary uh, opinions um, just because we, we just don't think that cancer, every cancer is the same. And so there's a lot of different things that, that go into it. So, you know, one of the benefits about being treated at an academic center is you have people that are thinking outside the box. You have people that uh, are, are, you know, even bringing clinical trials and offering different, um, you know, out of the box ideas to treating, treating uh, some of these cancers. Wow. Well, let me ask you, um, kind of getting at how every cancer isn't the same. What does a man's genetics have to do with the type of cancer, prostate cancer he develops? Yeah. So this is something that's becoming more and more obvious to us the more we study it. And uh, we've realized that all cancers actually have a genetic basis to them. The way cancer develops is um, DNA, which is like the, um, you know, it's, it's like the um, machinery behind, you know, why people uh, uh, develop cancer or DNA is it basically is the, the brain for all the cells that tell cells, you know, what to do. And so um, cancer starts with a damage in the, in the DNA and a part of the DNA. And so all, all cancer really uh, has some kind of genetic origin. Now, uh, that's not to say that everybody has a genetic risk for cancer. So we have to differentiate between um, germline cancer risks or germline um, genetic defects, which that means that someone is born with that uh, problem versus um, what we call somatic uh, mutations, which that's something that may develop on accident from just damage. Like for example, you know, smoking can cause DNA damage. And so somebody may not have a germline risk or born with that, but may develop that from different types of things that can damage the DNA and develop cancer. I see. So there is some risk if, if you have male family members you know, grandparents or uncles who had prostate cancer, you might be at a, a greater risk? Correct. So there are, we know from just looking at tons of, of you know, uh, patients uh, that it, it, all, if you look at all comers, if you look at men that present with what, remember we were talking about metastatic prostate cancer, that means prostate cancer outside of the prostate, about 12% of those men actually have a genetic germline where they're born with something that puts them at, at risk of, 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 of having prostate cancer. And if you look at men with localized prostate cancer, prostate just in the, prostate cancer just in the prostate, about 6% of them um, will be, uh, uh, have a germline, um, what we call mutation or germline problem or risk. Uh, that is something that we try to elicit or we try to find out when we ask the patient about the family history. So patients that have that are more likely to have some something that they're born with that puts them at risk for prostate cancer would be patients that have uh, like a, a father or a brother, somebody uh, close uh, to their family that has prostate cancer or that somebody that had, you know, if they have a father or a uh, uncle or something that that died of prostate cancer, that would put them at much higher risk of having a, a germline mutation or mutation that they're, they're born with. Um, not just, you know, not just prostate cancer. So there's a, there's a connection between breast cancer too and prostate cancer. So there are certain families that harbor, um, and maybe people have heard about the BRCA, the BRCA mutation. Um, that's, that's something that, that has been studied. And, and, and so a man that has uh, maybe like a mom or sisters that have uh, this BRCA gene that puts them at risk of having breast cancer, that could actually put a man um, at risk of having prostate cancer too. Now, that's interesting. We've normally heard of BRCA attached to like the, that is, you know, the breast cancer gene, but you're saying that it might also mean that you have an increased risk for prostate cancer. Exactly, exactly. And so if we can try to find out, you know, if, if you're, 
you know, what based your, based on your personalized risk, based on your family history, and we can do genetic testing on you or members of your family, and we can sort of find out what your risk is, we may start screening you much earlier than 55. Well, we can't really do anything about our genes, but is there anything we can do to reduce our risk of prostate cancer, aside from any genetic stuff? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, there's that's that's controversial. Um, <laughs> it's been studied. I mean, there's been a lot of like, there's been a couple big trials that studied um, nutritional things. Like there was a big selenium study um, to see if selenium intake um, would would decrease the risk. There was a big vitamin E study, and nothing really uh, panned out. Unfortunately, there's a drug called finasteride that men get for an enlarged prostate. And there's some evidence to show that this maybe can decrease prostate cancer, but there's also some evidence to show that maybe it you know, can cause more aggressive prostate cancer. So bottom line is there's nothing that has been, you know, obviously studied and obviously can prevent uh, prostate cancer. I will tell you just in general, what, what, how I counsel patients, you know, healthy lifestyle, um, you know, eating healthy food, exercising, avoiding known cancer uh, toxi toxins like smoking would be the most common thing. I mean, those things are always going to um, uh, be be beneficial. Um, you know, may not have been studied specifically in prostate cancer, but it's been studied in other other cancers, and and um, you know has been shown to decrease. Uh, cancer risk. So in general, I don't think it's going to hurt men to, to, to live a healthy lifestyle, to, to eat healthy foods, and to avoid uh, toxins, known toxins, especially smoking. Wow. Well, this has been very informative. Thank you so much to Dr. Joseph Jacob, a urologist who specializes in urologic oncology at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Opioid overdose deaths have doubled, and we'll explain why, next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. The number of deaths from opioid overdoses has doubled in Onondaga County, and today I'm talking about that with Dr. Ross Sullivan. He's an assistant professor of emergency medicine at Upstate and the director of medical toxicology. Welcome back to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Sullivan. Thank you very much. Good being here. So you're looking at the first six months of 2020 compared to the first half of 2019, right? And Onondaga County had twice as many deaths from opioids. Is that right? Yeah, that uh, that seems to be what the data is showing. So is it all because of the pandemic in some way? Well, you know, I think that the pandemic certainly has a big role in this um, increase of uh, opioid epidemic, uh, certainly. And um, I think it's multifactorial. Um, I think that um, in one hand, I think the pandemic in and of itself uh, increases things like just, you know, depression and anxiety and, you know, would thusly increase uh, drug use. Um, it also increases um, solitude and being alone, which we know is one of the most dangerous situations for a drug user to use in. Couple that with the closures that we've been having um, to decrease the connectivity uh, and the touch points for these patients, uh, including treatment centers. And although treatment is still occurring, um, at most levels, uh, it is less in person in general uh, than it has been in the past. And I think when you, you know, a couple of these things together, we, um, you know, you have a, a dangerous intersection of that Venn diagram. And unfortunately, we're seeing increased overdoses uh, as a result. Which, uh, which drugs in particular are implicated the most often? Well, you know, we... You know, here we see in our deaths, we still see a, a large amount of these deaths being attributed to heroin and fentanyl. You know, um, 
and actually mostly fentanyl in terms of um, what is driving the opioid epidemic. And that's something we've seen now for the past several years, actually, um, is that fentanyl is the main driver in opioid overdose deaths. Um, and that's still the case. Um, fentanyl uh, currently is still really driving the um, driving this overdose death rate. Um, it's incredibly dangerous. Um, and don't forget, though, that still other opioids still kill. And that's what, you know, it's important to tell people, too, is that um, pills and prescription opioids still, you know, uh, cause some death as well. Um, but fentanyl, for sure, is, uh, by the way, the largest culprit. Now, is fentanyl the uh, the drug that is put into heroin without a person necessarily knowing that they're going to get the fentanyl in the heroin? Yeah, so fentanyl still, um, you know, I think in the beginning several years ago, um, you know, the fentanyl in the supply was kind of um, hit or miss. I think that is still sometimes the case today, but I think that also um, scary, scarily that, you know, as um, you know, drug users continue to use, they um, they start to now seek out fentanyl too. So um, you have a situation where sometimes it's not known that's in it and other times it is being sought out now. Um, it's very dangerous, you know, and, and it's, it shows you the power of what we say things are like tolerance and dependences, right? It's very biologic and physiologic, right? And um, needing that the reinforcement um, chemically in the brain is very is very um, it's needed uh, biologically by these drug users. So it's a very powerful um, stimulus, um, and unfortunately, the fentanyl is very is very dangerous. Do you know if other areas of the country are seeing dramatic increases in in the overdose deaths? Uh, yeah, I think that what we're seeing, certainly in the state of New York, we're seeing um, overdose deaths almost universally go up throughout all counties. Um, nationally, we're seeing similar numbers all over the country um, of overdose deaths increasing. Um, again, what I mentioned earlier is important, but also just decreased financial resources. You know, uh, governments and and modalities are are strapped for money and for resources, and we're just you know maybe not getting to the people. So we are seeing it nationally, um, you know, concerned about what the 2020 national numbers will be. Um, and also here locally and in the state, it seems like those will all be increased as well. Are these overdoses thought to be mostly accidental overdoses or are these suicides? Uh, I think the thought is that most of them are accidental. Um, we do know that suicides in general are up as well. Um, there's not a ton of evidence or belief that um, that drug use or that accident, you know, using heroin or fentanyl um, is a big driver of suicide deaths. Certainly it is. Um, we believe that the drive of death, so in part, sure, suicide, but mostly accidental drug deaths uh, due to just all the things that we mentioned before. Um, you know, people just using more, more dangerous, you know, the dangerously uh, people are getting drugs from new suppliers and new, and new dealers you know, just less resources, less people to reach out to. Now, I heard that the federal CDC, um, there was a survey commissioned that found 13% of adults had started or increased substance use to cope with the stress of the pandemic, basically. Do you have a sense that that's what happened? Are these new people, like, that are new to drug use? I think you're seeing, yeah, I think you're seeing uh, both. I think you're seeing people... Um, well, I think you're seeing three things. You're seeing people who have been using drugs use more. I think you see people who, who have been abstinent from using drugs using again. And I think you do see people who have not used drugs using. Um, you know, one of the, you know, I know we're talking about opioids and opiates now, but um, for instance, alcohol use. Um, the data for people using alcohol has increased greatly. And, um, and a lot of these people who are now abusing alcohol, we're finding are people who really did not have abuse in their past, or maybe they had a potential for abuse. Um, but due to the pandemic and, you know, and all the stress of the situation, we are seeing new people enter treatment um, due to new or uh, recurrent use. So it really is, it really is worrisome. 
You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Ross Sullivan. He's an assistant professor of emergency medicine and the director of medical toxicology at Upstate. And we're talking about how opioid overdose deaths have doubled in Onondaga County during the pandemic. So these are trying times. And if many of the people who are dying from opioid use are trying to escape the depression, the dire circumstances, the isolation, are there safe alternatives to be suggested? Well, there's two things. Um, harm reduction being that, you know, to try to use safely, if you're going to use, um, you know, is there a safer, you know, intravenous drug to another? I mean, that's a difficult conversation, but, you know, we do tell people to try to, you know, use with other people, um, you know, try to have Narcan or Naloxone with you, um, you know, use clean needles, you know, try to get from a supplier, you know, and sometimes people feel uncomfortable talking about harm reduction, but it is an important tool and maybe more important now than, than ever, right? To, if you're gonna use, use safely. That's, you know, the first thing. And the second thing is that there are still resources out there. Um, drug treatment facilities are still taking patients. Some of it is by telephone, some of it's virtual, some of it's still live, but you, they are still taking patients for the most part right now. And things like uh, self-help groups like uh, AA and NA are still operating, most of which may be virtual, um, some may be distance, but there are still avenues to reach out for help. Um, you, know, you know, I tell people just because you think you're alone, you're still not, or, you know, we're all going through this, you know, go to a local treatment center, um, you know, they still will engage you, you know, there's therapy and counseling or medications, um, you know, maybe how we we deliver it's a little bit different, um, but there are still resources out there to help you. You you mentioned Narcan or Naloxone. Have you seen that save lives during the pandemic? It works all the time. You know, the number of patients I speak to on a weekly basis who tell me they've used it or they need some more. Um, I think that I, you know, the emphasis has shifted quite a bit, um, in you know, in terms of public health, which I understand. Um, so there's not as much focus or talk about Narcan, but Narcan is one of these things that just saves lives and makes sense. It's like wearing seatbelts, right? Um, you know, it's something that we need to continue to talk about, continue to get in the community, um, especially now. And I think that um, we're starting to see a, re a return to interest in places trying to learn to be Narcan trained um, and get and get the drug of Narcan with them. So we're really pushing that in as many avenues as possible to get it back into the community. So can people still obtain Narcan from a pharmacy to, to have like in their household? Uh, absolutely, there's, um, there's a non-patient uh, specific agreement in the entire state uh, that says that almost every, if not every pharmacy um, can dispense it to you without a prescription and it, and the state will cover up to $40 of a copay. It's called NCAP, N-C-A-P uh, program, um, where the state will supplement it with $40 of a copay of Narcan. Uh, also, however, additionally, every single physician can write it as a, as a prescription. So, you know, we're trying to get the word out to patients and, and providers that you should be writing Narcan for patients, even if they're not a, a quote-unquote drug user, if they're on pain pills or a pain patch, you know, think about getting Narcan into their home because a lot of overdose deaths still involve accidental pill overdoses. Um, we give it away in our emergency department to patients at Upstate through a program I run and also nearby drug treatment centers like Helio Health and whatnot offer Narcan trainings all the time. Um, so you can usually sometimes get state um, issued actual kits of Narcan for free in other ways as well. Well, let me ask you, for people who have an addict or a drug user in their lives, and we can't really be together in person the way we might be if there wasn't a pandemic, what are some of the things, what can we do to help? I mean, how do we make sure that they're going to be okay? Well, you know, you got to find any way to be there with them and connect with them, you know, whether it's telephone, video, um, you know, I tell people who who have loved ones who suffer with this disease of addiction, you know, that it's like any disease, unfortunately, you, you, you want to be there. You want to know they're okay. Um, but, um, 
you know, patients will have to, you know, seek medication or help or treatment, you know, on their own. So it, it's the, the most important thing is to know that um, to be there for somebody, listen to them, talk to them, be open-minded um, and, um, you know, get, give them Narcan, have Narcan and try to get them medication, try to get them help. You know, we have the opioid bridge clinic here at Upstate, you know, we take anybody you can call, you know, we'll take the patient um, where we can offer medication, you know, offer to, you know, help the patient and how they want to need to be helped, not necessarily how you as a parent think they need to be, because it doesn't work that way, you know. Um, and it's hard, it's a hard pill to swallow, right, to understand that. Um, but just be a conduit of support for the person. Um, talk to them, call them, Zoom them, um, and try to help them, you know, get connected to a treatment facility. We have a, we're lucky, actually, quite a bit here in Central New York um, that really do excellent work. And, um, you know, just try to get them connected. Well, you mentioned the Bridge Clinic, um, and that's something that you started at Upstate through the emergency department. Can you tell us how would people access that during COVID? I mean, there's some restrictions, right? Or, uh, Well, yeah, you know, because, you know, we still um, are taking patients um, in person. If, you, like, if you're somebody that uh, needs to be seen in person, um, um, we will see you and we you know, take necessary precautions. Um, we also um, do things virtually by uh, whether it's telephone or by a video chat. So for people who can't come in or don't wanna come in or should not come in, uh, we also are offering um, virtual um, sessions um, which is extremely helpful, especially people, we see people from all over the, you know, the North country as well. So for people who really can't travel, there's restrictions, you know, we will also video, um, um, health you as well. Um, so, you know, all you have to do is call, um, you know, if someone's listening, the number is, you know, 315-464-3745. Um, and we will set up whichever type of appointment that you, um, that you need or want. The, the bridge clinic is designed for someone who wants to stop using drugs. No, we, you know, we, if you do want to stop using drugs, we will help and assist you. We prescribe medications like buprenorphine. Um, some people hear the trade name like suboxone, um, but we prescribe buprenorphine. We prescribe naloxone and we also refer to treatment. So if someone needs inpatient, outpatient, um, some, you know, um, if they need a psychiatrist, you know, we, we see people with substance use disorder. Um, even if you um, weren't really sure if you wanted to stop or slow down, we will talk to you, counsel you, and kind of give you, you know, offer you alternatives. Um, so we're really here for the drug user who's on anywhere on the spectrum. Um, you know, we'll try to meet you where you're at to try to at least, at the very least, make your use safer. Um, but our goal is to get you on um, life-saving medication like buprenorphine or refer you somewhere um, to, you know, help you help a patient get what they need. Well, this has been very important information. Thank you to Dr. Ross Sullivan, Director of Medical Toxicology and an Assistant Professor of Emergency Medicine at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's Literary and Visual Arts Journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Catherine Howd Mahan teaches creative writing at Ithaca College, and she was Tompkins County's first poet laureate. She is the author and editor of many chapbooks and poetry collections. Here is her poem, Doves. My mother's dying. She's too young to die. Yes, I keep saying these words silently. Yes, they are my mantra. Three days ago, she told me the last tests came back. Her eyes almost met my eyes. Her lips almost smiled. Do you believe me? I do not like the truth. But yes, this time I am not lying. Shall I go to live with her as she is dying? Shall I cook for her each day as I have cooked for so many others all these years alone? 
She was the one who taught me pots and sauces, garlic, smooth red wine. But never did she ever believe what I told her about the man, the cracked swing, the broken rope, his hands that pretended to help. I was six, and he was our neighbor who shared his tomatoes, his grapes, the tiny eggs from his pale birds. She called him my friend Paolo and liked the way he smiled. And she made me keep talking to him politely. She made me go to his house with my rainbow basket to collect his gifts. I don't want to say anymore except very fast, very blurred, smiling different way, his fingers fondling round, ripe, red, sweet, purple, fragile shells, holding back until I had to come to him, his sweaty vest, his mouth, polite, polite, obeying mother not just once but many times until we moved away. Since 16, I have cooked and served. Now I am 51, my mother 66. Will I tell her before she dies? Love is a bracelet I put on, take off. I do not like the truth. This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, the diagnosis and treatment of kidney stones. If you missed any of today's show or for more consumer health podcasts, visit our website at healthlinkonair.org or do a podcast search for the phrase HealthLink on Air. Upstate's HealthLink on Air is produced by Jim Howe with sound engineering by Stephen Shaw. This is your host, Amber Smith, thanking you for listening.